Greetings and welcome to the Heart Hall Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Cordova. The Heart Hall Podcast is a show dedicated to highlighting the faculty, staff, and guests of the University of California Davis's Ethnic and Gender Sexuality Studies departments housed in Heart Hall and under the Heart Interdisciplinary Programs umbrella. In this episode, I speak with Assistant Professor Dr. Lorena Marquez from the Chai Studies Department of UC Davis. Dr. Marquez studied history at Sacramento State and the University of San Diego. She got her PhD at the latter university. In 2020, she released the book La Gente, Struggles for Empowerment and Community Self-Determination in Sacramento. We discussed the writing process of that book, surprising things she learned researching it, as well as her upbringing, her love of the Sacramento region, and even her next book, which is still several years away. Before we dive in, I'd just like to say, if you'd like to order your copy of La Gente, you may find a link in this episode's show notes. Now here's my conversation with Dr. Lorena Marquez. Uh, how has the last year and a half been for you in this weird time we're currently in? <laughs> it's been very stressful. Um, I have two kids, so it's difficult just to adjust for them as well. And, you know, all the limitations and why is this that way? And um, my kid just got home. One of my kids just got home, uh, sent home today from daycare because someone in their class has COVID. So it's Ooh. just like, we're so late in the game and it just feels like, just like that, your life is turned upside down and had to make some adjustments so that I can be here. Um, uh, that's brutal. I'm but sorry anyway, to hear that. <laughs> that's the way it goes. Yeah. Um, how has it uh, impacted how you're doing research and teaching and stuff? Yeah, so uh, research, Research has actually flourished during this time period uh, because I'm able to be home and I could just really focus on my research. And so I'm already working on my second book project. And um, so that's been great. Uh, In terms of teaching, it took me a while to get used to the format, but Uh, I think I have it down now and um, it's just a lot of emails. So that has probably doubled uh, in terms of my workload with whenever I'm teaching, uh, you know, there's constant messaging from students and you think you're clear, you, you, you give them tons of instructions and still for some reason, I think we all have sort of this fog Uh, things aren't as clear. So I have to be very patient and I have to encourage my TAs to be patient as well uh, because this is sort of just a stressful, weird time for everyone. And I want to get to your career, but I kind of want to learn how you got started. Like, where did you grow up? Yes, so I grew up in Galt, uh, which is the southernmost part of Sacramento County. Uh, Literally, you just, I mean, I could see like the county line into San Joaquin, uh, and, um, yeah, I was raised there. I went all through elementary, middle school, high school and Galt. What first got you interested in uh, history? Uh, I think I got interested when I was in high school, I started learning about, uh, mostly Mexican history, not Chicano history. And I just felt very drawn to it. Uh, but absolutely, by the time I reached college, I learned so much. And um, I think there was a lot of anger and resentment towards the public education system that had, I felt, denied me a right to learn this history. And 
it all sort of fell into place for me. I began to do my own research and reading uh, as an undergrad. I would just go to the library and you know start learning about, for instance, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. Um, I remember uh, you know, reading the whole treaty. I would read on Christopher Columbus and I read his diary. So I just sort of became a nerd and a sort of fanatic of history. Uh, and it was the most empowering, revealing, um, exciting uh, time of my life. And I started doing workshops at high school conferences through uh, an organization called Mecha, which is Movimiento Estudiantil Chicano de Aslan, uh, Chicano Student Movement of Aslan. And uh, I learned then that that's what I wanted to do. And the place to do it was at college. That's where you can teach the courses. And so I realized that I needed to get a PhD. That's what I was told. And my grades weren't the best as an undergrad because I was a working and I was also an activist, a student activist. And so I was advised by um, Vicky Ruiz actually, who uh, has since retired, but she's writ written extensively on Chicana history. She told me, go get a master's, get a 4.0 and then apply to graduate schools. And that's exactly what I did. I got a master's in history and I had a 4.0 and I got a full ride to UC San Diego. I like that a 4.0 was like a specific point of this plan. <laughs> 3.9, don't bother. <laughs> yeah, you're out of luck. Now, you, when you're talking about growing up and uh, getting kind of a, a skewed version of history that left out a bunch, I went to elementary school in Texas. I know a lot about Texas history from the views of the Texas school system, which I can imagine is wildly skewed. What was the what was like the first thing that you learned that made you realize that so much was being kept from you from general public school? Um, I think the biggest thing for me was learning that this was Mexico and um, that um, that folks were given uh, legal uh, rights that were denied to them uh, in practice. And um, so that was sort of mind blowing. But I think also the fact when I first learned, for instance, that Mexicans were legally white. So, uh, you know, that the treaty had made them white and yet they were treated anything but that. And so uh, it was just sort of like, how does that happen? Uh, how is it that that you are you grant people rights and then you deny them those rights? Because that didn't make sense with the sort of U.S. history narrative that I was fed as a, as an undergrad. I'm sorry, not as an undergrad, as a um, you know, as a kid. You know, you think that this this country is just. You think that this country. Um, is democratic, and then you realize that it's done a lot of harm to a lot of communities of color. And you already kind of touched on this a little bit. Um, what made you decide to go to Sac State specifically, and how was your time there? Yes, so um, I was the first member in my family to go to college, my first and only. And all I knew is that people kept saying, well, you know, college is for people who can afford it. So um, I had this really, back then they had these really fat 
pamphlets where you sit down. It's kind of like a book, like a resource book. And I literally wrote hundreds of letters to colleges all over the nation telling them that I had this GPA. And I wish I would have kept one of those letters, but um, in that my parents didn't have it, you know, income to send me to college, but that I was really eager about getting an education. And if there was any sort of financial aid or whatever. So I started getting all of these mailings. Can you imagine like back in the day, they used to send these beautiful like brochures of pictures of, uh, you know, the East Coast and these beautiful buildings and these like trees and all of this stuff. And they started coming to my house as I was just in high school, a junior. And my dad's like, what are you doing? Like, you cannot go to Texas or you can't go to New York. Um, you, what's wrong with you? Like you, that's not going to be an option for you. So they literally gave me the option of going to U- university of the Pacific, which is in Stockton. It's a private school or Sac state. Uh, and so that's what I did. I remember I went and I visited the campuses and to me, Sac state just sort of spoke to me. It was much more diverse. I felt more at home and they have so many amazing programs, such as EOP. Uh, I went to Summer Bridge, which was a, a, a program for underrepresented students. And you get to go, you know, stay in the dorms for two months before school starts. Um, they also have the College Assistant Migrant Program. And that was instrumental, I think, for my college experience in terms of meeting up with people who had, um, you know, parents who were migrant workers worked in the fields or agriculture. And I just felt instantly connected to that campus. Uh, And there was tons of sort of activism already in the 1990s um, during that time period. So it was honestly, I think, my training to become a a professor of Chicana Chicano studies is, is those early years at Sac State. Yeah, part of your bio has the the quote saying that you were keenly aware of educational inequities and is committed to making college truly accessible to all. How did your college experience impact you bringing that to the table as a faculty member? Yeah, so in 1994, which is when I entered Sac State, it was the fall of 1994, there was a proposition, Prop 187, uh, which was an anti-immigration proposition that was spearheaded uh, by then Governor Pete Wilson, and there was a lot of anti-immigration hysteria in the state of California. And so to me, um, you know, sort of my my coming of age as an advocate, as as an activist was really advocating for those who were undocumented and um, having members in my family who were not born in the US, who, who were born in Mexico, and having them go through that process, um, it just seemed very unfair. Um, and so I've always sort of been keenly aware of sort of the gatekeeping that takes place uh, in the US in terms of, um, you know, folks like myself, we're not supposed to make it. The, the university isn't designed to, to help us succeed. And so the odds are, are really stacked up against us. And so I just think that education is one of those things that every American, uh, every person, regardless of their um, 
their legal status should have the option to come to college if they want. Uh, one thing that stood out to me reading through bios of you is so much of your career seems like a love note to Sacramento and the region. But um, there's, I wouldn't be surprised if what you've told me about kind of being forced to go to Sac State, there was a resentment to uh, the area because you were forced to stay. Um, what about Sacramento itself still draws you in? Because what we're about to, I'm about to bring up your book, which of course is uh, about the Sacramento area. Yes. Uh, no, I did not have resentment uh, because I was, I, I knew that I was meant to be at Sac State. I think that I learned so much uh, but being at Sac State during that time period in the 1990s, a lot of the faculty would take to the streets with us. They would, uh, you know, be our spokespersons uh, for uh, rallies that we would have on campus. And it was because of them that I learned of uh, Chicana Chicano history. Um, I remember Jose Montoya, who has since passed, um, He's founder of the Royal Chicano Air Force. I remember him clearly speaking um, at a rally we had against Taco Bell because Taco Bell was coming to campus and um, Taco Bell had this slogan that they came up with, which was like uh, border lights or something about lighting the border. So like um, to bring lights uh, along the U.S.-Mexico border so that you can like catch undocumented immigrants, you know. Wow bandwagging off of uh, Pete Wilson, Governor Pete Wilson's slogans and his uh, xenophobia against Mexicans. And uh, so we were, oh, and they also had that Chihuahua dog. I don't know if you remember. Oh yeah, I do. And, <laughs> and so there was a lot of, um, a lot of pushback to bring Taco Bell to campus. And I remember Jose Montoya doing a speech uh, at um, this sort of union or the eating area on campus and saying, you know, he talked about, for instance, Operation Wetback. And I was like, what's Operation Wetback? That's a 1954 anti-immigrant federally funded program that literally, um, you know, like ICE went into the barrios and just picked up people and were deporting folks in large numbers, much larger than the repatriation of the 1930s. And so those little bits that I got from the Chicano movement generation, I was just like, here is the history, like they're living right here in front of me. And yet there's nothing to document their history, their, their existence in Sacramento. And I knew that Sacramento, Mexicans had been in Sacramento since the gold rush. And there was a lot of Mexicans who came from the state of Sonora, because I took a California history class. And yet there's not one article there's not one book that documents the existence of Mexicans in the region. And I just thought that was appalling and everything's on Southern California and everything happens in Southern California. And I wanted to disrupt that narrative because that's not true. <laughs> Mexicans exist all over. And, um, and I wanted to um, honor, honor their, their presence, their contributions to the region and um, my way of doing that was to get a PhD and write um, my dissertation on Mexicans in Sacramento, which later becomes the book. Um, and so, you know, it took me a long time, you know, from that period of time as an undergrad, 
when I started doing research in my history classes on Mexicans in Sacramento to getting my master's to getting the PhD and then the book, it's like something like 20 years. So it's a very, very, very long haul. Uh, it wasn't easy, um, but yeah, it is sort of um, not only an homage, I think, to Sacramento, but also uh, my, my way of saying thank you uh, to all of the, the Chicano movement elders who paved the way so that I could um, be at Sac State, so that Chicano studies exist. And here I am teaching in this very department that they fought so hard, hard for, um, because nothing comes free to us, nothing's given to us, we have to fight for it. Mm. Uh, in 2014 and 15, you and some students conducted 99 interviews of Sacramento, Chicana, Chicano movement activists and participants. This became this book, correct? Or parts no, of this? that's no, my second that's book. That's something else. Oh, that's your second book. We'll come back to that. Um, so for- Yeah, uh, none of those interviews are in the book. Interesting. In I, the first book. I misread something then. Uh, so for the for your first book, why did you decide to focus on the 60s and 70s in particular? Because that's, uh, in ways, it's not a brief window, but it's, it's definitely like a definitive time for this story. Yeah, so when I returned to Sacramento to do my research for my dissertation, uh, most of the material that I found that I was drawn to and I, what I thought was rich in terms of archival uh, collections focused on the 1960s and 70s. Uh, and so, uh, for instance, I didn't know I was going to write a chapter on desegregation uh, until I was working in the archives and I found you know, this desegregation case in Sacramento and Mexicans resisting to it. And so there, that was a chapter. Um, it was actually my master's thesis as well. And then um, I didn't know I was gonna write about canneries until I went to the archives. And uh, there was a collection by Ruben Reyes that talks about the struggles of cannery workers during this time period. Um, and then DQ University, which is my fourth chapter, um, that was just a, a history that I thought was really important and relevant to the region. Uh, and it really highlighted the, the students, the Chicana, Chicano uh, and Native American students who fought for DQ University to exist. And uh, it sort of just came together in that way in terms of um, you know, the, the, the materials being available and me being able as a historian to tell the story. Uh, and uh, then, you know, putting it all together, right, as a 1960s, 1970s Chicana, Chicano movement era and how it sort of fits into the historiography. What is the most surprising thing you dug out of the archives in all this? Because I'm sure there was something that you weren't expecting. Yes, yes. So for me, the most surprising was the desegregation case. Uh, because as a Chicana Chicano historian, uh, I was always taught that Mexican Americans or Mexicans had fought for integration uh, and into segregation. And there's all of these um, courts uh, that proceedings that happen in the 30s and 40s to fight against segregation and folks making the claims that they are white and that they, sh they legally sh cannot be segregated because Mexicans are white. And so when I read 
when I read about Mexicans in Sacramento resisting desegregation, I was like, what's wrong with these people? Like, <laughs> they're going against, you know, this, this, what has been fought for for so long. And here, why, why are they doing this? Right. And so I really had to pause and I had to take away all of the stuff that I had learned and listen to the parents who were making an argument that their school had cultural wealth, uh, who were making an argument that why do they have to carry the burden of desegregation? How come, you know, white kids aren't being bused into their, to their school? Um, and this idea of, you know, there's nothing good of the Mexican culture or the Mexican people, everything's bad and you have to get rid of that. And Mexicans in Sacramento were saying, no, we're proud of our Mexican heritage. We wanna keep bilingual education. We wanna have these uh, cultural commemorations at the school. The school means it's a lot for us to walk, be able to walk our kids to school, to pick them up. You know, taking away all of those things together um, was the reason why the Mexican parents at Washington Elementary were resisting desegregation. And once I was able to understand that, I think that really changed my mind in terms of the, the, the problems of desegregation. And there was other scholars that I learned, African-American scholars such as Derek Bell, that had already started to question desegregation and the benefits of it. Because now we know, uh, in, you know, 2001, uh, Harvard University did a study on uh, desegregation uh, in terms of looking 50 years since Brown versus Board, they were sort of saying, okay, where, where are we as a country? And we found that, or they found that uh, schools are now more racially segregated than they were in the 1950s. And why is that the case? Well, the whole, the whole reason is because of economics and neighborhoods. Uh, the neighborhoods continue to be racially segregated. Uh, and so, you know, we see that in Sacramento still in terms of you look at Southland Park and then what's right next to it, Oak Park, right? And so uh, not only do we have issues of uh, educational equity, we also have healthcare equity issues and so on and so on. So, um, so for me, the parents uh, in 1968 at Washington Elementary really taught me that uh, things don't always appear the way they are, right? And that maybe we need to question uh, some of the efforts, the early efforts of these. Hello? Hi, uh, sorry. I think our internet thing got frozen or something. Yes. All right. Uh, so what I realized is that I we've yet to say the actual title of the book, which is La Gente Struggles for Empowerment and Community Self-Determination in Sacramento. We did, yeah. I will definitely include it in my intro, but I, I figure we should include it in the actual conversation as well. It's, it seems important. Um, so you, you mentioned when we first started that uh, you were already talking about your second book, which is includes the 99 interviews you did. Um, how, I mean, you've spent 20 years on this last book and you're already looking forward. That's impressive. <laughs> I don't know. You know how it is at the UC. We got to pump them out. <laughs> So how is second book coming along? Oh, it's very slow. Um, I'm hoping to do it maybe in five years, have it have it out in the public, but 
Yeah, so I right now I'm working on uh, the transcriptions. I'm doing the coding. I already sort of know how my chapters are going to be laid out, but I haven't done any of the major writing. Um, so I'm really just uh, focused on, um, on, on the interviews themselves. And I'll probably do some additional archival research at Sac State uh, since some of the, a lot of the interviews focus on the time that students spent at Sac State and to highlight the Chicano movement uh, from their lens. Uh, and so they're very, very rich, the interviews. I'm learning so much, um, but so far I haven't found anything that I think, oh, I was wrong about, you know, my first, first book. So that's, that's good news, right? I've been, I was right uh, with, with the interviews I conducted for, for that book. And, uh, you know, I think this is just going to enrich in uh, that, that story that of a Chicano movement in Sacramento. I, I like the part of your research so far is keeping an eye out for accidentally disproving yourself or something. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it kind of sheds a light on constantly learning and willing to uh, sort of take a step back and really question what you think you know and what you know, um, which feels very important in general and something that not a lot of people do. Um, uh, is there anything else you wanted to, to cover? Because that covers all the notes I had, and I think we're coming up to the time I allotted for this. Uh, so the book is out now, La Gente Struggles for Empowerment and Community Self-Determination in Sacramento. I will include a link in the stuff for uh, this when it goes up. Um, yeah, is there anything else you wanted to, to touch on? I think I just want to encourage students to, to dream of possibilities for themselves, whether it's working on a book or making some sort of contribution in their fields. Uh, I think it's important for, for young people to envision themselves, uh, to make a difference and to always uh, give back. I think that's, that's instrumental. Uh, I think the Chicano movement generation has taught me that the struggle never ends. Many of these folks are in their, their 70s and 80s, some, some even in their 90s, and they're still doing the labor. They're still uh, active in some way. And so um, I think when you are an activist, just to think about it in terms of the long haul, I think is important. All right, well, thank you for coming on the podcast. Um, and uh, thank you for everything you're doing. And I think it's really interesting research that you're tapping into something that maybe people don't immediately think of. Cause I, I myself went to Sacramento state and I found that oh, you did? yeah, I was uh 2009 to 2013 or so. Uh, but I, my whole life centered around the radio station cause uh, I was driving in from Woodlands. I didn't really have like too many friends that I made out of classes. So like my, my people were the radio station and that's where I spent all my time. So I was completely oblivious to anything else going on there. Uh, cause that was just like a, the club I chose and that's the, and the radio station very much was kind of a cult. It was strange. Uh, it became all you th think about. Uh, but yeah, I, I had no idea. Like I walked through campus and saw people with petitions and, uh, signs and stuff like that occasionally, but you know, I was on my way to class and didn't have time to stop and really like listen. And I think that's something that people should also maybe think about is actually stopping and making time to listen. Um, yeah, I think because it's a commuter school, 
it, you know, that's a problem I think folks see all in, in all those schools, even community colleges. Um, so you're definitely not alone. Yeah. Although I did know of DQ from uh, Woodland Community when I was there. I I had a handful of friends that were trying to work on doing stuff with them and, uh, you know, ultimately didn't really work out. But that's that's one thing I, I did know of when I was doing some research with uh, some interviews that you'd done prior. That's awesome. Yeah. A, a crazy sort of story is that Jack Forbes, the late Jack Forbes, he... Um, I think I met with him like three times before he agreed to do an interview with me. <laughs> and that man sat with me, I don't know, four or five hours. And he gave me his whole life story. And, um, and then he wanted me to send him the, back then it was a CD when I did the interview and he passed away in November and so I think I interviewed him in July and I just always think like, I almost feel like he knew or like it was coming because, I mean, he, he told me about his childhood, about going to college. It was just, it was just such an experience. And I was very grateful to him because uh, he's in chapter four. I cite him mm-hmm. over and over uh, and um you know, such a visionary, such an icon and such an asset to UC Davis. Mm-hmm.